Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reputable Revenue Podcast. If you're a remote business builder, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore all things it takes to create reliable, repeatable sales growth in your business. So we talk strategy, tactics, marketing, sales, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll learn from me and my experience from sales rep to CEO to now founder of a business I've built in Baja, as well as other guests and experts. You can check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me. Now, let's dive into why you're here today. Hey, welcome to the show. And today I'm really excited to introduce Bob Perkins. Bob is a very good friend of mine. He's a mentor and he's been an advisor to me across different companies. He has spent his entire career selling stuff to people. Sometimes that's been political ideas. Sometimes it's been fashion. Sometimes it's been pizza. But the bulk of his career has been creating structures, creating strategies to effectively and efficiently sell stuff to people and doing that by taking a holistic look at the business and the organizations that he's working with. He's been a senior marketing executive and CMO at household names like Playboy, Pizza Hut, Calvin Klein. He's been a founder and mentor to many startups and he's been an advisor to several of the most influential people in in Washington, DC. And I'm really excited to bring his ideas, his thought process, and some of his perspectives to you. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome back to the show, Bob. Thank you. Glad to to have you. Now, you're a marketer, you're a consultant, you're an advisor. How do you introduce yourself? Well, you know, I violate Ray Green's first rule. And Ray's first rule is, have a target audience that knows in the first five seconds whether you can solve their problem Mm -hmm. or not. But since I almost always introduce myself to somebody who I know a little bit about, I try to sort of fold it to say, hey, I have a lot of experience solving problems in the area of, and then fill in the, whether it's marketing or strategy or whatever. So I sort of cheat a little bit, but if you said, give me the two cents, people retain me to solve a specific problem. I'm usually not retained to help out some pie in the sky. We're writing our five-year plan. We need somebody to help us. We launched this new product and it's fallen on its face. And what should we do? And we don't want to spend a lot of money and hire somebody else. So we'll spend a little money and hire you. That's how I think of myself. Cool. Yeah, I never know. We've worked together for so long and I don't know how I would necessarily introduce you, but you're, you're the guy I call with virtually any type of business. It can be strategy. It can be different industries. It can be leadership. Um, you've always got a got a unique unique look on it, so so it varies quite a bit. I want to start actually kind of drawing on that. You have, in my view, like a really unique background. You've been president of Shiat Day, New York's office, right? You've worked with clients like Apple and Michael Dell and Nike with in advertising. You've been an advisor to like top, you know, some of the most like hundred. 100 most influential people in Washington. I know you've, you've advised some of them. We know some of them, some of the same people. And you've sat in the C-suite and, and senior offices of Pizza Hut, Calvin Klein, Playboy, others. So you have this like very unique background and you've worked with a lot of high performers across those different disciplines. And so I'm curious, what if any patterns or actions or traits have you seen with the high performers that you've worked in those areas that something, someone like me, like your average Joe, I could look at that and say, these are behaviors or actions or something that I can learn that are going to improve my chances of wild success. Are there any consistencies or patterns or anything that somebody like me could take from that and and do something with? Yeah, I think so. First of all, the best CEO I ever worked for was Steve Reinemann, who was CEO of Pizza Hut. And uh, Steve and I, disagreed about a lot of things, but we agreed that he was a great CEO. But um, Steve's principal claim to fame was he avoided rethinking problems he thought he'd solved until they had data to the contrary. So you get a big organization, you have a lot of opinions. If you're the head of marketing, which I was at Pizza Hut, no matter how well it goes, it could have gone better. No matter how well it goes, it could, you could have spent less. There's always lots of ways to throw stones at it. And even though we were very successful and made all of our numbers, Steve had a rule. Once we made a decision, we don't revisit it unless we have new data. And that made my job possible. 
It really did. And I did some stupid stuff and I did some smart stuff because nobody's perfect. But the truth is, the bigger the organization, the more important consistent management is. Now, Steve always had a great argument, a great debate beforehand. Everybody got to say their piece, but it was sort of like a wedding. Speak now or forever, hold your And many's the time that the executive committee would all agree I should go do something, and then I'd go do it, and everybody would come back to the next executive committee moaning and groaning, and Ryan would say, anybody have new data? Then shut up. And I so love that because... It's so easy. You know, people talk about responding to new information and being nimble and quick and and all that kind of stuff, which is very important. I'll talk about that in a second. But I think it's easier to think you're being nimble than it is to be consistent and being consistent is more important. Mm -hmm. Um, More people were killed by nimbleness than were killed by consistency. so if you had, and you know, Steve was, you got new data, then I want to talk about it, obviously. So cons- consistent, thoughtful application of decision-making and sticking with it, consistency is very important. The second thing, and this is Jay Shiat of Shiat Dave, Templify this, Jay had a vision that he really cared about. And if you bought into that vision, he loved you. And if you didn't, he fired you. And Many people came to Jay and said, GJ, if you did it this way, you'd make more money. And Jay said, my goal in life is not to make more money. My goal in life is to have the best advertising agency in the world. Mm. Um, he had this great phrase, I want to see how big we can get before we get bad. A, a funny, but the t-shirt at Chiat Day was good enough is not enough. And I think leaders that have clear visions make life for everybody else much easier because everybody sort of understands where they're headed. Mm-hmm. You know, I would when I worked at ran the New York office, you'd go to a client and the client would say, well, I really want this. And basically you'd say, we don't do that. And the client would say, well, then I'm going to fire and you go, fine, that's your business. I mean, you obviously tried to talk him out of it. But at the end of the day, as a as a as somebody who wasn't in charge, you knew what the person in charge wanted. And therefore, when you had an opportunity to do something, you did it. And when somebody said absolutely not, you argued with them. But it, the whole organization had a focus and a bias to it, where does, which was really great. I thought. Where does where does a vision? Because what I heard when you when you talk about Reinemann is there's like a there's built in decisiveness, right? Like you, there's a decision making model that says, "Hey, we've made a decision. We're going to fight before we do this. We're going to make a decision, and then we're not going to revisit unless there's new data." And so it's kind of like I take that as a decision making model, kind of, and I combine that with you know, some decisiveness with the strong vision that you mentioned. I talk to a lot of people that have visions, but they change it all the time. There's no conviction. It's not deep. Like they have a vision and then three weeks later, it's a new vision. And three weeks later, it's a new vision. What's the difference, do you think? The vision influences the decision-making process. But I'll give you a great example. So I was at Chiat Day. This is before I ran the New York office. I was in LA and I sold a full page print ad to our largest client. And they loved the whole thing. And it was a very bold ad. It was very out there, except the headline ended with the period. And the CEO of the company was a grammarian at heart and hated the period and wanted to go. And I said, sure, fine. What do I care? I mean, we're not changing the words. We're not changing the layout. We're not changing the typeface. Well, Jay had a heart attack. You know, your job is not to get rid of periods. Your job is to get rid of clients that don't want periods, paraphrase Jay and language suitable for a public broadcasting. So vision requires the willingness to lose a piece of business or money. All visions are great until somebody says, you can either have your vision or you can have a million dollars. And most people say, I'll take the million dollars. So they don't really have a vision. They had a convenient idea as long as it worked, but the minute it didn't work, then they're onto something else. I mean, you know, the old story about, uh, I think they made a movie out of this with Woody Harrelson about, uh, is your wife a prostitute? No, would she sleep with me for a million dollars? Yes. Well, then we're just arguing about price. I think that's a good example of people thinking they have a vision, but not really being committed to it. And, um, you know, another guy I work for, I work for Calvin Klein and Mr. Klein, this is a great Calvin Klein story, but this is vision. We're making a new a new brand, a new super expensive suit. 
And it just so happens that the fit model was of 44 long, and that happened to be my size. And the fit model couldn't come to a fitting. So Mr. Klein said, Bob, put the suit on. We'll start with you. So we put the suit on. Everybody the con- he said, finally, he said, okay, Bob, what do you think? I said, well, you know, Mr. Klein, uh, this, we, I won't use all the jargon, but essentially the waist of this is a 34 waist, and I think it should be a 35 waist because I'm in pretty good shape, and I'm a 35 waist, and I'm a 44 long. And he looked at me and said, Bob, I don't want people with a 35-inch waist wearing this suit. That's a vision that is not driven by, I want to be the biggest, I want to sell more suits than anybody else in America, which is a different kind of vision. That was Linda Wachner's vision about bras and panties. Led to a different set of decision-making, she was equally great at holding her own ground to what she wanted. Mr. Klein was equally great at holding ground to what he wanted. But they were willing to make sacrifices to support their vision. And that's how you know whether you have a vision or not. And people that aren't willing to make sacrifices don't have a vision. They just have a convenient way of doing something until it doesn't work. Right. And you've worked with, I mean, from, you've named I mean, just a few of them, like really high performers, but across a lot of different disciplines. One book that you you recommended to me a long time ago that I love is is competing against luck, and I think it's kind of a controversial subject to a degree. What role does luck play across many disciplines? Wildly successful people. What portion of that is driven by luck, and what portion of that, from your experience, is driven by deliberate actions that people are taking to move towards their vision? Interesting question. I've mulled that over in my own mind many times. I think it. The way I like to think about it is luck plays a larger part than we like to admit, but we should never admit it. Let's just say I said it's 80-20, 80% work and 20% luck, which is probably pretty close to what I believe, by the way. Well, then every time you fail, you say, well, I just wasn't lucky. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people succeeded. So it's the 80% of work you did that wasn't right, not the lack of luck. So I think luck's important. Luck plays a role in stuff, but you should the minute you use it as an excuse, you're missing the joke. The joke is you you got to plan to be successful without luck. And if you get luck, super. And if you don't get luck, you still ought to be successful. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's funny. A friend of mine asked me to teach a college class and they wanted an example of good marketing and bad marketing. And they were thinking back to my shy day. So I picked the launch of Emerald Cards, the National Car Rentals, Emerald Isle, which was the first time you could skip the counter and go straight to the car. And we did that when I was at Chiat Day. It was my little project along with the CEO of National. And it was wildly successful because the CEO was willing to overrule the lawyers. The way it failed was we never anticipated once our lawyers get rollover and play dead. And once we've done it for a month and the world has not come to an end and 42 people haven't driven off the lot and never come back with our cars, every other car rental company in the country is going to do it immediately too. And they're bigger than we are and more successful than we are. And they're going to overwhelm us. And now most people think Hertz invented the idea. So you can say, well, you guys were lucky you came to it first. No, we weren't. You can say you were unlucky. Hertz did a bigger thing. Well, that's not luck. That's bad thinking on our part. We should have been built into moat a lot earlier. So I I think luck's important, but I don't think you should ever count on it or use it as an excuse. Kind of strikes me as I spend uh, the better part of my my early years in sales, and it's the same argument with leads, like quality of leads, right? Like, yeah, sometimes I get like a you know some low hanging fruit. Sometimes the leads matter, but consistent, sustained top performance over time isn't explained by by leads. But you know, it's it's a factor. Like you can't ignore it, but it's a it's an excuse if you focus on it too much. Yeah, to change subjects, but in a different, in a slightly different way. You know, in the Army, after they have a, a, a battle, they have what they call an after-attack analysis mm-hmm. session or after, something after like action, that. But after I was, action review or something. Yeah. Businesses hate to have that. Nobody in a business likes to sit around, and particularly if you're a sole entrepreneur and you have a couple of, of pitches that don't work, you hate to sit around and say, now, what have I done wrong? It's easy to say, well, they were jerks. They didn't listen. They didn't give me the right. I mean, there are lots, lots of reasons, all of which come out of some sense of reality. It's not like you're making this stuff up, but really sitting down and looking 
saying, what did I do wrong? Or to put it slightly more positive, what could have I done better? Is the most underrated skill in business, in my opinion. Because you know, and Ray, that I love the book, The Lean Startup by Eric and Reese, and Eric Reese calls startups learning machines. But even he doesn't do as good a job as he could, and it's a great book, and he's a smart dude, so this is not criticism, of saying, when you fail, you should learn something from it. And, well, I'm launching a new product, but I don't like it. Okay, I can think, I need to think about that, but I'm doing my same thing every day. It's, I know how to do it. I should just leave it like it is. The golf course I belong to get, was designed by Gary Player, and Gary Player comes once a year and looks at his handiwork. So I was talking to Mr. Player one day, and we're talking about bunker shots. And he said, well, I try to do 100 bunker shots a day. I said, wow, that's a lot of bunker shots. He said, well, normally I do 50, and then I, I keep going until I sink one. What if you've done another 50 and you haven't sunk one? He said, what don't you understand? <laughs> I stay until I sink one. I thought, oh, yeah, I got that. Well, there's a guy who's very, very good, who's dedicated to getting better, and he hits a bunker shot and says, oh, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. I mean, he's constantly learning. He's, he, and the beauty thing about a bunker shot is you get great feedback. Mm -hmm. You see where he hit the sand, you see where the ball went, you see where it ended up. One of the most important things of learning is feedback, and one of the problems of doing after-attack after analysis in the business world is you don't have all the immediate feedback you'd like. But I think that if somebody said, what's a skill that every entrepreneur should develop that they probably don't have enough, that would be my first, that would be my first one. Learn, learn from your mistakes. Just don't go, God damn, that's unfair and I'm moving on. Yeah. And you actually said that when, you know, just talking about high performers that you've seen across many disciplines, I think one of the first things you actually said was, learning, don't repeat the same mistake, like learn from the mistakes. And one thing that I, I have found over the last couple of years is as doing solopreneur stuff is having a decision-making filter on the front end, like something that says, here's, okay, I'm going to make this decision. Here's what I'm expecting to have happen. Here's what a win looks like. Here's what a loss looks like. Having that before I make some key decisions makes a lot easier when something doesn't go well to go back and look at, all right, what did I, what did I expect from this? and determine, all right, was it a win? Was it, was it not? And if not, what did I learn from it? Um, and so I've, I found like the process you go into decision-making probably heavily influences whether you're actually going to learn from the lesson, uh, learn the lesson that you should, if it doesn't go the way you want it to. Yeah. Have you clarified your objectives? Mr. Player said, my objectives to sink the shot. Mm -hmm. Either he did or he didn't. It's very bimodal. But if he just went, well, I want to get a couple very close, then how do you know if you succeeded? Mm -hmm. So I think you're absolutely right. Making sure your expectations are well set going in, in the process of finishing a little project that went very well and everybody's happy. But I realized that I had a different set of, what I wanted was X and what the client wanted was, was C. The client got C and they're ecstatic and I'm scratching my head saying, gee, I wanted X. And then I realized that was my goal, but that wasn't the client's goal. If, when I sat down, what was my goal? To make the client happy. I just didn't spend enough time figuring out what would really make them happy. Eventually, we got there. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. That a good decision-making process has, a, and it's all about resource allocation, which we'll come to in a second, but has a very, here's what I expect, here's what I did, here's what I got, what can I learn from this? And that's a process that in my opinion, breaks down often at the end. Yep. What did I learn from that? Oh, I got, you know, I'm too busy to think about that because it's painful. It ain't fun. No, but it's, it's so you avoid doing it again, which is the, you don't want yep. Groundhog's Day in your business. Or how you get better at it because most mistakes, there are all kinds of mistakes, but most mistakes in, in the consulting business aren't, I said do X and I should have said Y. And so the next time you come to that situation, it's, I didn't explain it the right way. I didn't use the right language. I didn't think about it. I mean, it's more of a cacophony of errors, not just I was going 60 in a 55 zone and I got a ticket, so I'll never go 60 in a 55 zone. That's very black and white. Usually it's mistakes in our businesses aren't like that. No, not when you're solving complicated, complex problems. 
you know, there was something we talked about last time that really resonated with me, the takeaway, and I know other people that heard it, and it was about the essence of strategy. And I can't remember if it was Drucker or Porter, but it was, you know, and I think you said the essence of, of strategy is denial. Like it's saying no to things. And we know that like as, as entrepreneurs uh, or even executives, you know, we, we know intuitively that we can't, there are always going to be more ideas than we have capacity to execute. There are always going to be more things we want to do than resources to, to go after. And we know we've got to let some fires burn. We can't do everything and we can't do it really well. But I see this being like with a lot of the, the entrepreneurs that I coach, I see this being the source of failure for a lot of people. And it's the inability to prioritize, the inability to say, I understand that that, is, that has some urgency or that's important, but we have to let that fire burn in order to focus on the bigger priority. That trade-off is a really, really difficult thing. And people end up getting diluted, trying to chase them all, trying to do it all. And just revisiting that, I'm curious, like, why do you think that that's so hard for, for entrepreneurs? Well, it's, it's Drucker, Peter Drucker said it. Well, I think it's hard for three reasons. Cause I thought about, I love the quote and I use it all the time. I think the first reason is it implies that you're not a super person. Everybody likes to believe, oh, I can do one more thing. I can stay up a little bit later. I can work a little bit longer. I can come in on the weekends or I can get my people to do it as you get into a bigger organization, which just isn't true. I mean, we all have resource allocation. The second thing is usually in my experience, this looks like a long shot, but if, but if I win, I win a lot. You get blinded by, by the odds to use Fooled by Randomness, I think was the title of a book by Taleb. You know, the old saw in fundraising, if, yeah, but a million dollars a ticket, we only have to sell one. So something comes along that looks like it's a little out of what you really do and what you're good at, but boy, it looks like there'd be a lot of money. So you sort of say, boy, I'll get this. Not realizing, hey, the odds are one in 10 that I'll get it. And if I chase five of the people that I normally get, I'll Odds are one in five, I'll get one of them. So it's two and 10 versus one and 10. I better go after the two and 10. But that's a very difficult thing. The size of the reward is very uh, seductive. And the third thing is we all tend to lowball how difficult things are. This client I mentioned earlier, they said, well, we can just make this change and that'll be easy. And I said, no, that change will take take us two weeks. They went, oh no, we'll get it done right away. Well, it took us two weeks. It's not because anybody's stupid, not because anybody didn't want to work. It's because it was a tough change. But it's really easy to be seduced by, hey, I can work a little bit harder. There's a big payoff and it won't be as tough as I think it is. And those three things all make denial more difficult. And And it's just as difficult for a big company as it is for a little company because humans are all suspect to the same three errors. The CEO of of a big company, and when I was at Calvin Klein, we said, hey, let's go chase a license in South Korea. We said we don't have the time, and long story, we went and chased it, and we got it, and it it wasn't as much money as we thought. It didn't work out as well as we thought, and it screwed up everything else because we took our eye off the ball. But we suffered from all three of those failures. So nothing to do with size. It has everything to do with mental toughness, which to go back to a characteristic of great CEOs that I've worked with and great people I've worked with, they all are mentally tough. They're not afraid to make tough decisions. And when things get tough, they don't go, oh my God, this is so outrageous. They just make the decision and stick with it. I have a vision and I'm going to stick with it. That requires mental toughness. I'm going to do an analysis and learn from it. That's mental toughness. Right. And in, I think in this case, what's interesting is when you're saying, because I relate to like when you list those three and I think about any of the mistakes that I've made in the same vein, they all hit on that. But in this case, mental toughness is not, hey, you know what? I can put in the extra work. I can grind it out. I can hustle harder. I can push. Mental toughness is having the, the toughness and the discipline to say no to something like which yeah absolutely. feels harder it's not to fool yourself yeah mental toughness is not fooling yourself yeah. 
how do you do it? Like it's, so we, we know we've got to let some fires burn. Is there a better way that you know of or that you've seen to quantify the amount of work that's really going to go into it? The real probability of, of success, like how do you do it? I think the most underrated tool in business is the budget. One of the clients I work with is just going through, a, as you might expect, just finishing a budgeting process. And I was very critical of it. We made a lot of changes because the budget should reflect the strategy. It shouldn't be the strategy document. So you really have to sit down and say, hey, you have to get methodical about it. How long will this take? Why do I think that? Is that really a good assumption? And if you put them down on paper and read them the next morning, 95% of the time you ask yourself, you say to yourself either that makes sense or you go, what was I thinking? I mean, as a rule of thumb, we're usually smart, smarter the next day than we are today because there's nothing like a good night's sleep and a little dinner to knock some common sense back into you. So I think it's a matter of creating budgets and whether it's a, I'm one of my clients, we just pitched a piece of business for us and my partner said, I think we can do it for X. I said, you're wrong. It's going to be 2X. And he said, well, they won't buy it for 2X. And I said, then we shouldn't do it because unless you want to work for free, which I didn't think he did and he did, guess what? We priced it at 2X. We explained to the client why it was expensive and the client went, hey, that's a good price. You're hired. But most people, there is a reluctance to do the hard work before you do the hard work. In other words, people say, well, I'm willing to work 20 hours in this project, but I'm not willing to spend two hours figuring out whether it's going to take 15 hours or 30 hours because nobody's paying you for that. That's the first thing. And secondly, because there's a lot of guesswork in it. But if you do it religiously, you get better over time. 20 years ago, when I estimated how long it would take me to do a project, I wasn't very good at it. But in 20 years, I've gotten better at it because I've made a lot of mistakes and I've learned from those mistakes. And I, this looks easy, but it's not. This looks hard, but it's not. So I got better at judging those. So I think you really need to have a budget going into a project. And when you get done, you need to say, how did I do? I mean, most when I'm working on a project, I keep track of my time. And most people go, oh, that's so much work. That's such a pain in the butt. It's not a pain in the butt. There are 42 company, 42 software programs to help you do it. But the point is, if you don't keep track of your time, how the hell do you know how much time you spent on a project? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you sit down at your desk, you start working on a project, you get a text message from a friend, and then you bat around with him, and then you talk to your wife, and then you go out and have a cup of coffee, and you come back. In your head, you've spent four hours. In reality, you've spent about 60 minutes. But when you go to write it down at the end of the day, it's much tougher to fool yourself. Yeah. You know, you treat yourself like you're the CFO. Bob, did you really spend four hours and that's all you produced? Mm-hmm. Well, actually not. You know? So I think you got to realize the only thing you have is this, as an entrepreneur, the only thing you have as a business person, the only thing any of us has to sell is intelligent use of our time. That's yeah. So that means you got to know where you're spending it and you got to know what you're focusing it on. You got to be able to say, look, I got an ROI for my time. Because, you know, one of your things, Ray, is don't sell by the hour, which I think is tremendously valid advice. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you don't need to know how many hours you put in. Right. right? But it's in terms of the client that you got to, are you intelligent in applying your time to solve their problem? And you're just asking for a piece of the return. Hey, you're going to make a million bucks. I want a hundred thousand. You may not phrase it that way, but that's how I always think about it. If a client comes to me and says, I have a big problem, but I can't, if I solve it, I won't save much money or make much money. It's like, well, then why do you want to solve it? Right. Yeah. Not selling your time doesn't mean not tracking your time. Like you have to understand where it goes to understand whether you're allocating it properly or not. Like a a really good example is earlier this year, I resigned from a fractional engagement. Um, I think it was at the end of January. And so for February, March, and part of April, I said, I'm not doing any more client work. I'm going to focus my time on building the coaching program, getting content, you know, redoing some marketing systems. So I, you know, I allocated time in April. I started selling that coaching program that I'd built over the course of a couple of months. And for me at the end of the year to go back and assess, was that time well spent? Like, was there an ROI on it? I have to know how much time I spent into building out the MVP of this and what the return was. Like you said, I mean, it doesn't mean 
you go sell by the hour. Like that's a, that's limited inventory by, by nature, but not selling hourly doesn't mean just willy nilly, like do whatever you do what you want. And I, I have found actually like a really good tool. I don't know if you use Google's calendar, but Google calendar now has a function called time insights. And so you can block, like when you block your time and you, you change yep. the color to certain things. So I have one client that takes this when I'm doing client success stuff, it's this color. When I'm doing sales stuff, it's a different color. When I'm doing content, it's a different color. I can look at the end of the week at the pie chart and see how much time I spent on administrative stuff, how much time I spent on content creation. And I have found what it also forces me to do is when I block an hour to write for this or for anything else, I know that that's going to be on my clock or that's going to be on. So I'm less inclined to get distracted. Like, you know, I'm less inclined to walk downstairs and see, you know, Jack around because I'm, I know that I'm accurately tracking. So I time block more proactively and I stick to it in a more disciplined system. So it's, that's something that's worked for me. And I think the other advantage of that approach is during that hour, it makes you less anxious about everything else. Yep. Because, yep. hey, what about those clients? Well, I got four hours blocked out for them this afternoon. That'll be just fine. You know, I'm a golfer and any, every golf book talks about the only way you can hit a good golf shot is to be fluid. You can, tenseness kills speed. You can't be tense in the hands. You can't be tense in the elbows. You got to be fluid. Makes total sense. Tight muscles don't go fast. Everybody agrees with that. And I think that it really applies to when you're trying to work on a problem when you have other problems at the door. The more you can help yourself not worry about those other problems, the better you will do because the back of your mind is not being gnawed away from by what about this, what about that. The other thing you get, you get an hour to, to write something or do something there's a certain amount of time all of us need to be productive, and it varies by person. I'm not saying that you and I are the same or everybody else is the same. But let's just say it takes an hour to be productive. When you block out an hour, you know you got an hour. You know that's enough time to get the job done. You know everything else is going to be okay. You're much more likely to be successful than you are if you are worried about something else or saying, well, boy, I better get this done in 45 minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. But most of us underappreciate, because all of us have big egos, most of us underappreciate the necessity of creating conditions in which we perform at our optimum. It's like when I go golfing, I warm up for 15 minutes first. And why do I do that? Because every golf magazine, every golf instructor in the world says you play better golf if you stretch and warm up for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't. Well, I really care about my golf game, but I can spend four hours on the course, but I can't spend four hours and 15 minutes with 15 minutes of warming up. They're just kidding themselves. And it doesn't make any difference because it's a game, and so they lose 20 bucks in a Nassau, not the end of the world. But people underestimate the importance of doing that in their own personal business world. Mm -hmm. And I think blocking time out and keeping track of your time is a way to maximize the probability that when you're doing something, you're as productive as you possibly can. And the other thing, because we're all Pavlovian, if you manage your time and you have a home run, nothing feels better than saying, hey, I just got paid twice what I wanted to be paid per hour because I did this project so well. And nothing spurs you to improve when you say, gee, I just realized I worked for 50% of what I thought was a fair price. So after the fact, it's it's either a motivator or a reward. So I agree with you completely. Yeah, there's um, and you said this earlier, like about the practice before before golfing. You said you if you avoid the hard things before the hard things, that extra time planning and prepping for the hard work. You know, it's measure twice, cut cut once type of shit. Yeah, there's a few questions I have for you on. I call them like the gray areas of business, right? Like it's because a lot of what you see on on LinkedIn or in content because the nature of the content is marketing. So people are pushing their tactic. They're pushing their approach to something. Hmm. Cold email's good or cold email's bad or cold calling's good, cold calling inbound, outbound. Again, what you see is very absolute. Like it's very, hey, this is the way to do it. That's not real life. That's, that's at least my experience. That's not, I think it's kind of misleading. Like there's obviously some right and wrong ways to do things, but answers in, in business aren't necessarily black and white. Um, and so there's a few, like there's some gray areas and how we navigate in those areas, I think can be, can determine whether we're going to have some big wins or not. A few questions I had in the gray area, right? Contextual type. Okay. Um, 
I'll start before I ask one of the questions. If, if anyone has ever heard me and most people have say tactics follow strategy, it's something that like you basically tattooed on my brain a decade ago when we were building some other, building some other businesses. Can you give context, like what you mean by that? I know it's kind of self-evident, but where does that stem from? I'm sure I stole it from somebody, but it actually stemmed from all my time in politics when people would run in my office and say, I have a big idea and here it is. And you realize that mostly people run into your office with tactics. Let's do this. And it's not that they're bad ideas or they're bad people. It's just that you don't have any context to judge them. You know, we go back to earlier, we, we were talking about dedication and vision and commitment to vision and all that kind of stuff. Once you get a vision, and that requires a strategy. How are you going to implement that vision? And once you get that, then you, then you can start to throw stuff in or out very easily because this helps drive that, this doesn't help drive that, and it gets back to makes denial much easier. Hey, great tactic, doesn't fit my strategy, we're not going to do it. And a lot of denial is all about tactics. You know, it's all about here's another thing we could do that we're not going to do. So tactics follow strategy is a great way of asking the question, what are you trying to accomplish? And you'd be amazed how many times you ask a business person that question and you get, well, I'm trying to make more money. Okay, how are you trying to make more money? Well, I'm going to sell more stuff. Well, why? Or In other words, People think of strategy as an ethereal, big picture thing. They don't think of it as something they have to think about every day as they make a series of decisions. Yet that's exactly what it is. It should be the filter through which all decisions are passed. Mm -hmm. So I just find that the only way you can manage and run a, a successful business is to constantly be holding the tactics you're employing up against the strategy to achieve vision. And then if the strategy is not working, you're going to want to change your strategy. Then you may go pick up a tactic that you previously discarded. Cold calling doesn't work for this strategy. It may work very well for that strategy. Yeah. But you now have a way of judging why is that? What changed? And so I, I'm just big on, in a funny way, it's simplicity. One of my clients is trying to sell more movie tickets because there's a lot of positive benefit in that. So is the strategy to sell more tickets to people who already come to your theater or more sell tickets to people who never come to your theater? And everybody goes, well, both. Why? Why both? What? I mean, in other words, so once you get the group to agree, we'd love to have people who come to our theater buy more tickets, but the truth is they know about us. They know where we are. We got a really high net promoter score. They all understand what we're doing. 50% of them are very familiar we're going to focus on the people who have never been here. That gives you a whole nother set of tactics mm -hmm. that never would have been appropriate if your goal was that, well, we got 400 people come here pretty regularly. Let's just get them all to come one more time and we'll declare victory. So it, it really forces you to link up what you're trying to accomplish with what you're doing. And um, I've never had somebody that had a good strategy and then looked at a tactic that didn't drive that strategy and didn't say, we shouldn't consider it. It makes decision-making so much easier. Yeah. So tactics follow strategy. Say your early stage, whether it's a, a tech startup or consulting startup, whatever it is. Like yeah. you're, there's the saying, and I've, I've said it before, it's, I can't remember where it's from, that you know, action leads to insight more than insight leads to action. So there's like, part of this is, when you're not really clear on things, sometimes you can act your way into getting answers. Like action will, will get you there. But that's also the flip side of that is just trying every tactic in the book without a clear strategy and you end up just bumbling around and it's an excuse for, for not, I mean, you're not making progress towards anything. And this is one of those gray areas. What's the difference, do you think, between those those two things? You know, go back to Lean Startup and Eric Reese. To summarize a great book in a few words, and my apologies to Mr. Reese, what's the most important thing you need to learn and what's the cheapest way to learn it? So in a startup early on, those are strategy questions. Am I going to appeal to large corporations? Am I going to appeal to small corporations? Am I going to appeal to small businesses? You start to try to sell your product and you sort of act like a Roomba vacuum cleaner. If it works, you keep going. And if you hit a wall, you try another direction. But you're constantly trying to answer the question of what is the strategy that I'm thinking of? 
and there's a lots of sec what we call in the business, obviously, secondary research. You may do a lot of homework. You may talk to a lot of people. You may have to understand things, but eventually you have to go out and talk to people and try to sell them something and see how it goes. But once you get a strategy, then tactics become much easier to justify because you say, okay, I'm going to run 100 LinkedIn ads because I've decided my target is X. I can buy that target on LinkedIn. I'm going to run 100 LinkedIn ads. I'm going to measure my response rate. And if it doesn't pay for itself by a factor of three, I'm not going to do it anymore. Simple. Mm -hmm. Strategies fixed. That's a tactic. That didn't work. It's like my little movie theater. We tried LinkedIn. It didn't work. We tried Instagram. It worked pretty well. So we spent more money on Instagram. And because the web's easy to track, you could sort of track your value and you could sort of see it was working. That was a tactic. The strategy was reach a new audience. Mm -hmm. And there are other ways to do it. Simple ways to do it, you know, let's hire a high school kid, $15 an hour every week to go to the 30 grocery stores in the trading area and put up a poster on the grocery store wall. Here's what's playing at the Bedford Playhouse this week. Mm -hmm. Now, very cheap, very inexpensive. Everybody in the trading area saw that because everybody goes to a grocery store. So all of a sudden, but we had a strategy find new visitors. After a while, we tried some, use this code for a discounted ticket so we could sort of see how it was doing. But you know, when you were spending not very much money, you didn't need to be very successful since a ticket, a movie ticket is 100%, not 100%, a movie ticket has a high variable revenue because there's the fixed costs don't change. You have to pay a little more to the movie owner, but not much. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think all strategies have to be, to answer your question in a different way, all strategies have to be tested in, the, in front of the client, in front of the potential consumer, just as all tactics do. But you can get that feedback very quickly. And you just have to be methodical about figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And um, Well, you, you kind of hit on like another piece, another question like this, the gray area where there's two kind of two not necessarily inherently wrong ways to look at it but you mentioned the Roomba the question is like how do you know when to pivot and how do you know when to persevere and I'm and because what I see is you know I think a lot of building your business is a flywheel like take marketing like a lot of the heavy lifting is on the front end but once you get it in motion it starts like the the dividends that you're getting from it tend to be exponential but mm -hmm. if you and if you're constantly pivoting on your audience or your offer or whatever it is, then you're just like a room, but you're just spinning around in circles, you know, and you never really give yourself the, the opportunity to build momentum and get the flywheel in motion. So like, that's, that's one part of it, but then there's all like, you don't want to necessarily stay on the wrong direction. So like, if you're out there and you're trying to learn, how do you know when when to pivot and change directions and know that there may just be some cost and starting over versus no, you've got to stay the course and push through some of this and keep the consistency to get the flywheel in motion. To go back to strategy and tactics for a second, I think strategies have to be decided very slowly and tactics can be discarded relatively quickly. So if somebody came to me and said, gee, I've done 10 interviews and here's my strategy, I'd say, let's do 10 more. In other words, picking a strategy is like getting married. You know, it's not impossible to divorce yourself, but it's a huge pain in the butt. So I would be very cautious before I lock down on a strategy. Once I locked down on it, I'd be very reluctant to change it. Whereas a tactic like LinkedIn, I'll, I'll buy 100 ads and I'll see what happens. And if it doesn't work, I'll move on. You know, you got to give it a fair, you can't say I'll buy one ad, but you don't have to buy a thousand. There's some, you have to have some reasonable time frame to test it. So I'm very slow to change strategies and very quick to change tactics, assuming I have good data. And if you didn't have good data, then you should have created, should go back and reevaluate why you're doing it in the first place. Because if you don't know how well it's performing, then it's tough to know whether you should change or not. But I think, you know, a question that I've gotten fascinated with to change gears a little bit, but into the how do you change strategy, 
what happens when there's a huge exogenous variable dropped in your lap? So, you know, Ray, I'm fascinated by chat GPT. Uh-huh. And to blow my own horn, the first thing I said is this is going to be the end of Google. And of course, the front page of the New York Times business section two days ago was Google is scared completely of chat GPT. I felt like they should have called me. I could have saved them some time. But if you're a content creator and you're using content creation to drive leads, how is that going to impact your outcome? So that's a gray area. That's really a, hey, I'm not changing my strategy. I'm still going after a certain kind of business that when they open my website, when they read me, they know exactly whether they're in my target audience or not. But how is that going to impact, how is the availability of virtually instantaneous commentary, which chat GPT is, and it's usually pretty good, actually. How is that going to change my tactics of using LinkedIn as a funnel? That's a tough question. When I was at Calvin Klein, you were in the fashion business. Mr. Klein had a very clear vision, but some quarters we were in sync with what the people were buying and we sold a lot of stuff and some quarters we weren't, we couldn't sell a lot of stuff. And truth be told, our advertising wasn't going to change that. So when the buyers came back from the first big fabric show in January, which is where the colors for the following spring season were being picked and said, it's mauve this summer, next winter. Mr. Klein said, I hate mauve. I'm not using it. That was a vision decision. How did you as a business person incorporate that reality into your go-forward plans for the business? That's a toughie. Those are tough calls. And at least having a clear vision and a clear mission and a clear strategy, it made the tactic discussion a lot easier Mm -hmm. because nobody got together in a room and said, okay, we're all going to put together a big deck and make Mr. Klein accept mob because we knew it was a waste of time. Let's spend all that time thinking of something that we can get him to buy into. I mean, he was a pretty flexible guy when it came down to a, a lot of stuff, particularly advertising. So that's the difference between a, a good consultant, a good business person, and an average one. You're not talking about what sets people apart. It's their ability to succeed in uncertainty. And I think we all do ourselves a disservice by not recognizing up front that many answers aren't very straightforward. Right. There are processes you can put in place. There are things you can put in place. There are ways to maximize the value of success. I used to say, I still do say, the job of a campaign manager was to maximize the value, the probability of winning the election. But that meant you could lose the election and be a great campaign manager because you moved the probability of winning from 10% to 70%, but you lost 70% chance of winning. You still can, you lose two out of one out of three times. Whereas somebody else could move a 80% chance of victory to a 40% chance of victory and squeak through and look like a rock star. The job is to maximize the probability of success. And that is Once you get the blocking and tackling and the basics out of the way and you clean up a lot of the stuff, you're still left with some very thorny issues. Reminds me of uh, another book you recommended to me, uh, Annie Duke's Thinking in Bed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The example that I use all the time is if you play your hand the way that you're supposed to play your hand perfectly, it doesn't mean that you're going to win every single bet. Like that's just the nature of business, the nature of poker. And she uses the example of if you drive home drunk one night and you make it home safely, does it mean it was the right, like the right decision? Obviously not. And you wouldn't systematize that, but that's the fallacy of all of only using results to back into things too, because the fact is it's not black or white. It's not, I played this hand ergo every time I play this hand, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this outcome. Like it's not that simple. And that's why, you know, it's like this, this whole discussion about the truth is really in the gray area and it's very contextual and it's very, it depends on where you're at and what your strategy is and what your vision is. And that's where luck starts to rear its ugly head in an unpredictable way. I thought I had a great strategy. It was working and then somebody else did something else and it it didn't work so well. You know, I ran a political, I was, I raised the money for a U.S. senator running for a long time who was 
who was ahead and was doing great. And he was rich, very rich. And his wife was a lot richer. And one night he was having a drink with a reporter who was a good friend. And the guy said, you know, there's a lot of discussion. He didn't pay any income tax. And he and his wife had just given a huge contribution to a Christian college, which they did not want publicized. And so the, the senator said, well, hey, that's bullshit. I paid $2,000 in taxes. Well, of course, the headline was he only paid $2,000 in taxes and it cost him billet. And then Jimmy Carter swept Tennessee, which shows you how long ago this was. But, you know, you just have to go with, you have to do the best you can in situations like that. You're not always going to win. Mm-hmm. But you're always trying to maximize the probability of a win and you just accept, as Annie said, I had a hand that 72% of the time should have won and I went all in and it lost. That that means 72% of the time I would have won and I love that book, but I haven't read it for a while. I think this is something that businesses also don't think about very often, which is what is how much can I risk on this strategy? What is the, you know, Lee Trevino, who's a famous golfer and grew up very poor and used to say, people asked him about, he's won majors and a lot of tournaments. How, how do you handle the pressure in the U.S. Open, Lee? And Lee said, that is nothing compared to being in a bet where you lose you're into the game for 50 bucks and you only have $10 in your pocket. And I always thought that that was an interesting way to, I don't know if you read this, but the CEO of Pfizer turned down the government money for the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, mm-hmm. turned down a billion dollars. So this is not chump change. And they asked him and they said, well, why is you turn down? He said, well, here's the deal. If Pfizer loses a billion dollars, we will still be a great company. And we'll still be in business. I probably won't have my job, but we'll be just fine. If we're successful, as I think we will when we get the vaccine, we'll make that money back many times over, which, of course, it turned out they did. But his analysis started off at a very interesting point, which was we can afford to lose the money. I'm not betting the company on this. Maybe my career, but he'd made a lot of money. It's something that we don't think about oftentimes when we give clients advice that are how much of the quote-unquote capital are we asking them to put at risk? When I was at Pizza Hut, we launched a new product, and it turned out not to work, long story. But the CFO, who was a wonderful human being, even though he was sort of a jerk, came into a meeting one day and said, I hate this idea, but if it fails, we'll be okay. Well, that was a very smart comment. Mm-hmm. So when you think about advice you give, you want to maximize the probability. You want to play the odds to be Annie Dukes. You want to maximize the probability of a win. But you want to keep an eye on what happens if this all goes south. So you, are you going to be around to fight another day? The first time, I don't know if you remember this, the first time I met you, I was running the business unit, the inside sales uh, deck yeah. center for the chamber. And our COO, my boss, came in and said, hi, meet, meet Bob. He's you know, our advisor, the, the CEO. And I said, okay. And I sat down. She said, hey, tell Bob about this thing you're working on. And we'd been trying to fix new membership for a while. And I said, all right, so I've got this idea. What we're going to do is I'm going to take my sales team down. And I, you know, I laid it all out. And I said, it was, you know, it was, it was creative. And I said, and I was really excited about it. I said, all right, I think this is it. In your words, you said, I don't think it's going to work, but you should do it. And I was like, who is this guy? Because I had just met you. Like we, we hadn't even had a cup of coffee, but I, I look back on that and it's the exact right answer. Like, I think the chances of this succeeding are low, but the upside is high. If it's a scalable way to bring on new customers, great. If it's not, if it doesn't pan out, whatever, you've got 10 more ideas. But at the time I was in this world where I have one idea, I'm going to make it work. Like I've got to, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it that way, but that was the very first, I think that was the first five minutes I ever, I ever met you. And I look back on that and I go, yeah, it's, it's the right answer. Even if you don't think the idea is going to work, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And even if you do think it's going to work, it doesn't mean you should. Like there's, there's all these other variables that go into it. Yeah. Um, Thank Wayne Calloway for that advice. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it was good advice. I had a former CEO of PepsiCo, just for the record. You shared something a couple months ago with me, but it was an article about target markets. And this is another, like, was the last of my gray area type of things, but it's okay. Um, the article, like to, in, in summary, my takeaway was, we think about defining our niche or defining our target market as this kind of binary, define the firmographics, the demographics, like nail it down. And then that's who you're selling to. 
Like that's who you're marketing to. And you should always have that persona in your mind when you're, when you're focused on your target market. But the gist of this article was instead of saying that's the target market, picture that same persona or that same definition as the bullseye on a dartboard and then draw circles around it and recognize that it's more probabilistic than it is deterministic. Like that's from the article and in meaning the further you get away from that bullseye, the less the likelihood that they will buy stuff from you is, or the, the less that they're going to be willing to pay for it. But it doesn't mean other people outside of that audience aren't going to be drawn to your product or to your service. And so it's, it's, there's some inherent, I don't know if danger is the right word, but you can get too narrow and think that you're only talking to one person when you don't recognize it's a whole dartboard. It's, it's probability based, not deterministic. And I say all that because in the context of, you know, I'm, you mentioned at the beginning of the, at the show, like one of the things I, I tell people is you've, you've got to understand who you're talking to. You've got to understand who you're marketing to. Otherwise your messaging, if I'm everybody's consultant, I'm nobody's consultant. If I solve every problem, then I solve no problems. So there's this piece of needing to get narrow enough that your messaging resonates. And when somebody comes to your website, they can go, okay, like person can solve my problems. But there's also this process of figuring out who your market is, right? Like getting out into the market, solving some problems, finding where your specialties are, finding who your favorite, favorite clients are going to be. And so it's not as simple as you don't want to go so narrow at the onset that your messaging is going to be right, but you're not really learning. You're not validating. You're not opening the, the net wide enough to take in new opportunities and learn about who you help best. But if you try to say, Hey, I do this for everybody. Your messaging is going to be so generic and so vanilla that you're never going to have the opportunity to help anybody worthwhile. How would you go about that? If you were starting fresh today, does that question make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier in the beginning, as you figure out your strategy, you're sort of a Roomba vacuum cleaner. Once you sort of think you've done enough homework, and let's leave how you know that aside for a second, then you pick a target audience. And I, I now go back to uh, crossing the chasm. No matter how narrow you start your target audience, the goal is to quickly move into adjacent target audiences. In other words, and this is an easy example because it's an easier example in it's difficult to come up with many examples this simple. In the book, Moore talks about, you know, first you start with eyes, ear, nose, and throat doctors, and then you start with doctors of the upper chest, and then you start with head doctors, and eventually you have every doctor in the world. But you didn't start with doctors, but there's a long reason why he believes this. So the question is, once you get a target audience, I would try to sit down and say, what's my target, target, target audience? And then what's the slightly bigger target audience? And what's the slightly bigger target audience? If I read the, I read the headlines in your website, which I should, could pull up and read it, and then we could have this conversation. But how big is your target audience in the first place? And the real question I'd ask is, how do you make it small? And then as you get successful, how do you grow it organically? And I always think in my mind of a sparkler, which has all the excitement in the middle, but the little tails going around, picking up people farther out of mind on the dartboard. This is a tactic we're talking about. What's the strategy? The strategy is, the question we're trying to answer is, how do I convince a company that I have the right solution for them, recognizing that there are, it's not like how do I know that Aaron Judge is worth all that money? Well, he had five seasons and he has all these statistics that in selling consulting services, you rarely have that kind of clear, differentiated source. You sort of have to educate people that you're smart enough and then talk to them and understand their problem as you outlined so well. And then they sort of think you're the natural person because you've been through this process with them. And gee, Ray wrote some smart stuff. He asked me some great questions. He helped me think about my problem and he solved that problem before. Mm -hmm. That's where the target audience is important. He solved that problem before. So as you get more and more problems you've solved, then you can start to expand your target audience. So you need to be thinking about, from a tactic perspective, let's go back to my movie theater. We didn't say we're only going to focus revenue marketing on new customers. We said, 
we're going to spend 20% on getting current customers to come back, but we don't have to spend money because we see them. So when they come in the store, we come in the theater, we just have to make sure we give them something. We have, you know, lots of in situ stuff we can do that's pretty inexpensive. We're going to spend 80% getting new customers. I would say 80% of your target marketing ought to be aimed on your target audience and 20% ought to be aimed on a slightly bigger target audience. And the trick is not to go from the center of the dartboard all the way out here to the edge. Oh, look, I have somebody 47 light years from my target audience, but I think they like, let's go fart around over there. No, you want to move from the bullseye to one ring out. So you need some thought process how you're doing that. And is that a dip? What's the tactic to do that? And that's a growth strategy. And I would say that most solo entrepreneurs don't need much of a bigger target audience. They got enough people in their very narrow target audience that they can stay there. You know, it's like when I was at Calvin Klein, to go back to Calvin Klein, when we were selling, you know, $4,000 purses and $6,000 dresses, there's a certain group of people who have the interest in the financial wherewithal and desire to buy that. But beyond that, you know, you could say, well, let's try to get people just a little bit poorer or a little bit less fashion conscious or a little bit outside of a city that has cocktail parties where you have to dress up. Very expensive market, mm -hmm. long run for a short slide. So the first question I'd ask to go back to your question is, how big is my little circle? And if there are a lot of companies in that little circle and I need 10 a year to be successful, so that means I need 150 over the next 15 years, if that's easily understood in my circle and it's probably renewing itself anyway, maybe I don't need to get bigger than my target audience. I mean, you know, you and I, Ray, have talked about this growth is a very seductive thing. One of my buddies runs a little marketing company and he's very straightforward. I want five clients a year. That's it. So if you try to find his website, you won't find it because he doesn't want it to be found because that just generates a lot of incoming leads and questions from people that'll never hire him. And he's got 20, 25 companies on his hit list and he figures if he can get a fifth of them every year, and he adds five and takes five off, he can run his business forever. Yeah. So you really have to go back to what's the strategy I'm trying to consider before you worry about how do I get farther out on the wheel? It's a great way to put it. I mean, when you say how many people do you need, there's a lot of solopreneurs. You need 8.3 people to pay you 10 grand a month to have a million dollar business. You know, like it's yep. not like you don't have to build these massive, massive funnels. One thing I've, and I think it's actually stems from that article. One thing I've started to think through is your audience that you sell to isn't always the exact same audience that you market to from a social media standpoint. Like the audience that I speak to on LinkedIn or on Twitter or something is actually wider than like intentionally wider than the number of people that are going to buy from me. Executives that are aspiring to maybe one day go solo or do some consulting. There's people that have just you just started out. There's like services that aren't quite as high. Like there's all these other people that engage with my content and that's what helps it get reach. Like, so understanding who I write to from a marketing standpoint and what helps gets engagement and, you know, helps increase the amount of audience that's going to hear my message by default increases the number of people in the bullseye that I'm going to talk to. But I know that everybody that engages with my content isn't going to buy my stuff, but recognizing the you need a little bit of that, especially if you're doing organic marketing. If you only talk to a bullseye, then your content's not going to go anywhere. And no bullseye can be that. No media is so targeted that you can define your bullseye that carefully. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the illusion of target audience advertising is I want to show that reaches 80% men. So that's football, but there's still 20% women that watch it and they're going to watch your ads and it's easy to kid yourself that we're being really super highly targeted here and your definition of your target audience is, is probably not that good. So when you use broader reach mediums, that's good news because this is name awareness. Right. You know, somebody thinks about Ray and they go call somebody, one of their buddies up, hey, you heard this guy named Ray Green. And if they say, yeah, I read his posts on LinkedIn, he may not be in your target or she may not be in your target audience, but her reference is very important. So- you know, it's a gray area thing for sure. For sure. Well, this is um, enlightening as always. I have one last question for you and, and 
in signing off here, what's the favorite quote or the best piece of advice you've, you've received? I, I would say just do it. I mean, we, Shia Day did not come up with that line. That's Wheaton and Kennedy. But I think that at the end of the day, mindless activity is not very valuable. And you can certainly, as I hope I've made clear in this conversation, lots of ways to maximize the value. But at the end of the day, you got to go do it. That's how we learn. Learn more from action than we do sitting around batting ideas around in our head, circling around the circle in the drain. Yep. Everything has a time. You know, I, my wife came to the gym the other day and just as I was working out with my trainer, and she got there a few minutes early. So she got my trainer walked over and said, how are you doing? And she said, God, you almost killed him. And I said, you know, honey, I can stand around by myself. I don't need anyone to pay me to do that. <laughs> perfectly capable of sitting in this gym for an hour and not breaking a sweat and being perfectly content. I need somebody to I pay him to chase me down and make me work my butt off. I think that's a reflection of most human beings. It's like why we have jobs as coaches and consultants half the time. Yep, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your time, Bob. Love having you join. Always, always appreciate it. Always fun. Give my best to Sam. Give my best to the kids. Likewise, give my best to Joni. And we'll cross paths at some point. Here's to a great 2023 for you and everybody we work with. That's right. It's going to be a fun year. Thanks for your time. Adios. Thanks for joining us this week on Repeatable Revenue. Make sure to check out rayjgreen.com where you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you found value in the show, we'd really appreciate a rating on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Or you can simply tell a friend about the show. That helps us out too. And if you want to explore any of my other resources, like my email newsletter, my coaching program, any special events, you can find it all at rayjgreen.com. Thanks again.